Hey, um, before we get going, I, I'm really excited for Summer Fest. Next week is going to be a good time. Love just hanging out, having fun. Hopefully it doesn't rain, and hopefully it's not 100 degrees. We're real picky about weather. Um, God's going to make it perfect for us. And uh, amen. Someone said amen. I hear you. And uh, it's going to be a good time. Also really excited. I told you guys last week about something that we're doing uh, as a church. We call it Home Run Experience. And so if you go to church here on Sundays and involved here, we do something called Home Run Experience. And it's really, uh, it's based off of our senior pastor's book that he wrote a few years ago called The Home Run Life. But if you're looking for just more, kind of a deeper study into what is it that God's called me to as a believer, as a follower of him, how should I live this life? What's his design for me and life? It's an incredible three-week class that we offer for anyone who wants to come to it. And so they're doing, I think it's Sundays and Mondays uh, throughout the month of June, they offer this class. And so if you want more information, you can stop by the hub on your way out. And there's a little card there. and some People will talk to you, get you that card. You can go on the website and check it out. It'll be a lot of fun. Also, I'm really pumped because uh, we have a team of I think it's seven, seven people that attend here on Thursday nights that we have sent out. They left uh, last night, and they are still flying in the air right now. They're on their way to Cambodia, and so uh, on a mission trip that we're sending them out to, and so these seven young people from C12, they've been raising support for months, and uh, they committed to this. Uh, they're going to be there for, I think all in all, it's like a 10-day trip. And so they're taking 10 days out of their summer to go spread the gospel and to serve the people in Cambodia. It's a large sacrifice. It costs a lot of money that they had to raise. And so I'm super proud of these seven uh, people that are doing it. I think right now, last I heard, they're in Korea. And it's like a 13-hour layover in Korea. So they're hoping to get some rest. It's a 21-hour flight altogether to Cambodia. And so I'm just super proud of them, excited for them. And I made a, a mistake. I thought they were leaving tomorrow. And so I was going to pray over them uh, tonight in service, but I was wrong. Once again, they left uh, yesterday. And so I got to come out here and pray with them before they left. But I would love to just encourage them and just let them know that we're behind them, that we're supporting them. You can imagine being in a country that far away from home, that far away from comfort, not the food that you're used to, not the sleeping conditions you're used to, just a lot of different stuff. But they're taking a leap of faith to go over there, and uh, they feel like God's called them there. And so I would love for them just to know, hey, we're behind you, we're supporting you, we love you. And uh, I would tell them that we're going to pray for them, but I first need to ask you, will anybody in the room, just, I just need one person to say, I'll commit to praying for them. Maybe 10 people, 20, whatever. Say, I'll commit to praying for them for the next 10 days. Whenever I wake up or whenever I do my I'll commit to praying for them. Awesome. I got some people that will pray. Now I can tell them that we'll pray for them. Uh, so here's what I want to do. Um, I can, can we just take a video? They have like their own little Facebook page where uh, people are just getting on there and encouraging them. I'd like to post a video to their page and they can just know that we're behind them. Can we do that real quick? I haven't practiced this. I'm really awkward with selfie things, but uh, let's just go for it. You guys look happy, okay? Look happy. Put a smile on your face. There we go. Hey, uh, Cambodia trip. We want you to know I'm here at C12. Say hey. Yes. Hey, we want you guys to know that we love you. We're praying for you. I already got like 20 people out in the room, maybe even more, 20 people to at least say, I'm going to commit to praying for you. So we want you to know we're praying for you. We love you guys. We support you. We're here for you. And uh, we're so honored to be called your family. And uh, man, we're just praying you guys have a great trip. So eat some good food, enjoy it. And uh, we hope to hear great things from your trip. See you. Come on. Thank you guys for doing that. I just want them to feel supported, you know? Is that okay? <laughs> Great, because it's done. Um, hey, uh, I know we prayed a little bit tonight. Can I pray for us before we dive into Scripture and, and for what I think God's given us for tonight? Is that cool? Great. Lord, we love you. And uh, we're just so honored to get to be in your presence tonight. And um, Lord, we just we need a special word from you. And uh, God, we need more than, than just a cute little teaching. We need something from you. And so, Father, I ask that you would reveal that to us, God, that you would give us something tonight. May we be changed forever. May we walk out of the doors different than the way we walked into them. And, Lord, we do pray for these young people in Cambodia. We ask that you would give them strength, 
unmeasurable, never had this kind of strength before. Give it to them, Lord, we ask. We ask you give them faith that they've never had to step out of their comfort, even more so than they've already done. And, Lord, would you bring about results that we could never even dream or imagine because that's the kind of God that you are. We love you. In Jesus' name. Somebody said. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, um, super pumped to end this series. We've been talking about my big fat mouth, which is an awesome title for uh, a series. And uh, we've been kind of really focusing in on this scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, focusing in on this fact that uh, Jesus called us to be united as a body of believers, because we're better when we're together, we're better when we work together, when we're unified together. And I think in the country that we live in, really in the world that we live in, we're seeing the repercussions of what division causes, right? And so even more so, those who say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, we should be united like no one else. And uh, Paul writes this letter to the church of uh, Ephesus, and he says, hey, one of the ways that you can be united is by leveraging the power of your tongue, by leveraging what comes out of your mouth and using it for good. Because how many of you know that you can either use it for good or you can use it for bad? And so Paul writes this letter. And so we've been focusing in on that and how can we leverage what comes out of our mouth for good and not for bad. And so um, if you don't know much about Paul, I thought I'd just give you a little of a brief Overview. Paul was a guy who came on the scene after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, and he was originally named Saul, and he was not a fan of Christians. He was actually a persecutor of Christians. And so he was the guy that was like, no, not cool to believe this. In fact, even went to the extent to kill those who were saying, I'm a Christian. So Saul was like the worst of the worst kind of guys. And then God shows up to Saul, like a radical encounter. Saul has a radical conversion. It actually, the scriptures talk about how it, uh, Saul gets knocked off his horse. He gets blinded. God speaks audibly to Saul. And because he has this radical conversion, he says, there's no way I can deny the existence of Jesus, the existence that he was here. And so he becomes uh, not only a believer and a follower of Jesus, he becomes one of the like, most radical missionaries that we've ever seen. And he becomes a church planner and becomes uh, the author of many, many of the books in the New Testament that we read. And so that's Paul's background. Now, if you can imagine... He's writing to uh, these Christians. Most people believe that the book of Ephesians was written somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D. after the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. And so somewhere around then, now he's writing to Christians. And he's writing to new believers, new people that have said, hey, I've decided to follow Jesus. Now, I want you to put yourself into the shoes of these new believers. Many of them are uh, people who... Saul experienced Jesus. They were here like when he was doing his ministry. They saw him perform miracles. They saw him crucified. They saw him uh, be raised from the dead. And even some saw him ascend into heaven. So many of these new believers are like, hey, I've seen for experience this Jesus guy. I'm now a follower of Jesus because I believe in him. Now, on the other hand, where Paul is traveling to all these different places, he's encountering these traditional Jews, and these Jews who believe in the Old Testament, they've been following the ways of the Old Testament, and they've been awaiting the arrival of a king. They thought their Messiah would come in the form of a king, like, like crown, king, like, like England, you know, what we just, royal wedding, king. Except it wasn't a king, that was a prince, right? Princess. How many of you guys love, did any of you watch royal wedding? Crazy people. We love other countries more than we do ours. Um, Anyway, so they were expecting like a king to come and rule on a kingdom. And then Paul is telling them, he's, he's going around to these people and he's saying, hey, actually the Messiah came and didn't establish a kingdom here on earth like that. But he came to establish a different kingdom. And he came not as a king, but as a servant, as a lamb who would give his life to save those. And so some of these Jews, you know, they, they recognize that like, all these prophecies that were written in the Old Testament got fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. So many of them convert to what they were calling the way. I don't know if you know this, but back then they were not called Christians. They were actually called followers of the way. And so many of them were saying, wow, 
this is true about Jesus. I'm going to convert to this and now become a follower of the way. So you have these old Jews now transforming into these like new Christians, believers in Jesus. But then you had what we call Gentiles. Gentiles were people that they were not believers in the Old Testament. They weren't practicing Jews. They were believers in some other religion. And so Paul is going to them. He's reaching people who saw Jesus. He's reaching uh, former Jews, and they're converting. But he's also reaching Gentiles, people that believed in something else. And he's saying, guys, you've got to listen. Listen to what this man came on earth and what he claimed and what he did and what has happened to all of our lives. Because and many of them were converting. Now, when Paul writes this letter of Ephesians, when he writes it to uh, the people of Ephesus, he's then going, okay, for those of you who have committed to following Jesus, you're committing to the way. You're saying, all right, I'm into this. For those of you, listen to what Jesus has called us to live like. And you got to think, many of them, like their mind is being blown. They're going, wait a second. So you're telling me Jesus says I don't have to sacrifice an animal to get forgiveness of my sins? And he's like, yeah, you don't have to do that. Jesus came. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. They're like, wow. Many of them, I mean, their lives are being transformed. Their, their thinking is being transformed. They're saying, wait a second. You're telling me that when Jesus was here in his ministry, he taught that women should be valued and respected and honored just like everyone else, maybe even more so than everyone else? This was a new belief, and Paul's like, yeah, yeah, this is what Jesus taught about women. Wait a second, you're telling me that I'm not responsible for my salvation, I don't have to be good enough, but Jesus came and he was good enough and he gave his life for me? Paul's like, yeah. So we're not talking about new believers that are just, this is some fluffy, like, new thing, and it's cool. We're talking about people who completely, radically transforming the way that they live, their former way of thinking, completely changing it. And then he writes this letter to them, and he says, hey, and this is what Jesus calls us to as those who are followers of Jesus. This is what he calls us to in how we're supposed to speak to one another, how we're supposed to talk to one another. And that's where we pick up in Ephesians chapter 4. We've been reading these few verses, so just want to read them one last time this week. I know you're getting sick of it. You're supposed to say, no, Austin. No, it. <laughs> All right, so Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, Paul says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is transforming to them. This is so different than what they've lived by. You just flip over to the end of Ephesians chapter 4 to verse 29. And he says this. So do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this, these verses just rock my world. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God, you, uh, Christ God forgave you. These are not easy words to listen to for these people who are becoming Christians. And if we're real honest, they're not easy words for us to listen to. This is challenging. Anybody else agree this is challenging? I don't find it really easy to live like this. I don't find it just a natural form of the way I talk or the way I treat people to be like this. This is our challenge, though, that this, this should be what we're known for. This should be. And so we've talked in the past few weeks about a complaining spirit. We talked about a critical spirit. We talked about, uh, what did we talk about last week? Gossip. A gossiping spirit. I'm glad you guys know that. And then uh, tonight, I want to I be real specific. My goal for tonight is I want to talk to us about how to handle relationship conflict. And my goal is, is, is to be kind of a teacher, 
And if you'll allow me, I, I talk about this sometimes. Every now and then I like to put on a different hat. Sometimes like I get to be the encourager, the uplifter, and all these kinds of things. Tonight I want to be a teacher and, and may even lean a little bit into like kind of a, a father figure. I know I'm not old enough to be your father, but if you would just kind of give me a little bit of a like mentor type role in your life, I'd love to take that tonight I, because I believe with all my heart that good, sound people that love Jesus and love people, other people, like even those kinds of people get in relationship conflict. I get in it, you get in it, your mom gets in it, your sweet grandma gets in it. Everyone has relationship conflict. But relationship conflict, if not, uh, if not dealt with the right way, man, first of all, it can be painful and it can be really, really destructive in your life. And so I just want to give you a few thoughts tonight about uh, how to handle relationship conflict. If you're in it right now or if you've been in it before or uh, trust me, you're going to get in it in the future. And uh, the Bible actually says a lot about it. And so I just want to pull a few things from it tonight and uh, hope it will be helpful to you. Is it possible for the life that Jesus has invited us into to actually be real life? I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I view like what I read in this book to be really cool and it sounds great and it sounds awesome, sounds like a good life. But then I got, my, like real life is over here, you know. Uh, God, this is actually how my relationships work. This is actually how friendships work. They're messy. Uh, they don't go like you think they should go. People stab you in the back when, they sh when you weren't expecting them to. So it's like scriptures and what God teaches, that's cool. But this is real life. Is it possible for these two things to collide and actually be one? I believe that it's not only possible, but it's actually probable that you could have that kind of life. That what we just read in there could actually be your real life. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. You believe that? I believe that. So it's actually possible for you to do this. And so I just want to talk through <clears throat> a few things, excuse me. So if you're taking notes, I want to give you a few um, just kind of points through how to walk through relationship conflict. Are you ready? Come on, if you're taking notes and you're excited, someone say, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> you got to encourage me a little bit up here. It gets lonely up here by myself. So number one is this. I want to encourage you when you find yourself in relationship conflict, I want to encourage you first to settle it with God first. Settle all your emotions that come with it. Settle it with God first. Now, I know I can't speak to everyone's conflict and every type of conflict. There's tons of different kinds of conflict we may have, and some are really, really serious, and, and I can't even understand the complexities of it. You're like, Austin, no one even knows the complexities of the conflict that I'm walking in right now. But then there are some that we all just kind of generally face. And so I know I can't speak directly to your conflict, but what I know is this, for every kind of conflict, if you can find time to step away from the conflict itself and settle it with God first, the moment that it pops up, the moment that it arises, whether it's something in the heat of the moment, someone starts coming at you super hard, or in the heat of the moment you heard gossip about you, if the best to your ability, if you can step away from the conflict, and settle it with God first. What I mean by that is you take everything that you know about it into a quiet space, some kind of space where you and God, where you can just be real honest with God and say, this is what I'm walking through. This is what I think has happened, blah, blah, blah. You can settle all of it with him first. And what happens is your emotions get removed from the conflict and you begin to see things a little more logically and not as emotionally emotionally like vested into it. Does that make sense? And so stepping away from it gives you a different vantage point into it than if you just react right in the moment. And so I realize that not every conflict allows you to do that. But if you can, first of all, it will allow you to invite God into the conflict itself. 
And I don't know that there's any better advice for conflict than inviting the Holy Spirit of God into it and asking that his light would shine on it, that his character would rise in it as it rises through you, and that things could be settled in a holistic, kind of restorative type of way. That's inviting God into your conflict. I don't know about you, but I just, sometimes I forget to do that. And I just think in my willpower and my knowledge and in my strength, I can conquer this thing myself. But man, I'm telling you, when we invite the Holy Spirit of God into it, things begin to shift better than we can shift them ourselves. And then I already said it, not only does it do that, but it allows you to kind of calm the emotional intensity of the situation. allows it to calm down a little bit so you can address it in a different way. (coughs) I've never seen any good come out of conflict resolution when it was addressed like the day of or the moment of. I really haven't. Because what happens is when you bring the like immediacy, is that a word? Immediacy? It is now. <laughs> immediacy of the conflict, like when, it, when you try and settle it right then, you bring everything into it. All the emotions, you've had no time to think through it. And I promise you, if you can step away, you may end up going, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, it's not as big of a deal as I thought it was. Or actually, now that I think about it, maybe this is a good thing. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, like, God's going to use this. He can use it. This is bigger. This is bigger than just a little conflict. This is bigger. So step away from it. If you can. Number two, my favorite point, because it's the hardest point. Number two is this. Assume the best. Now, this is before you actually have, like, a conflict resolution conversation. Second thing, assume the best. It's so easy to assume the worst about the person, about the situation. And so many people lose the battle of conflict Or they heighten the intensity of the conflict from the very beginning because they fail to assume the best. Assume the best in someone. And you don't start doing this like, you know, when you have the conversation. No, you start doing this before you even have a conversation. You know what? I'm going to choose to assume the best about this person. I wrote it this way. Here's, Here's some truths you need to know. First of all, it takes two to have conflict. You know that, right? It takes two to have conflict, so there is likely a different perspective on your conflict than your perspective. Obviously, it takes two. So assume the best. Assume that they may have a different perspective on it than you, and you need to hear their perspective. And then I wrote it this way. When you're going into conflict, always tell yourself the best possible reason for why they are doing this. When you're going into a conflict scenario, tell yourself the best possible reason for why they're doing this. What's the best possible reason for why they said that? I see this a lot in, um, in like freshmen in college. If you're, if you're a freshman in college, shout out to you. And uh, here's one of the most difficult things that happens in a freshman in college, especially if you find yourself... Uh, Maybe living, like you're going to live at home, you're going to go to GGC, or you're going to go to UNG, and you have a lot of friends that are moving off. Anybody ever lived through this? You have a lot of friends that move off to different schools. What I see all the time is friendships get kind of more distant because people moved off, and the person that stayed at home always starts assuming the worst about that person that moved off. Like, well, they're just not a loyal friend. I thought they were a good friend, but they stopped talking to me, and we don't have the same relationship, and they told me that we were going to stay friends, and now we're not, and now they have new friends, and they're posting on Instagram all their cool picture of friends, buddies, BFF friends, and now I'm sitting here all alone, and I don't have, you know, I thought they were my friend, right? And we start blowing up, and we start assuming the worst. Can I just tell you specific to this situation? When people move off, they have to find new friends. If, if you guys were moving to a different state or a different college or whatever, you know one of my like, greatest pieces of advice to you, what it would be? Go find new community. 
Go find new friends. Nothing wrong with old friends. You know, they got you here, that kind of thing. So stay loyal to them. But go find new friends. You have to find new community, new friendships that are going to hold you accountable, all these kinds of things. And when that happens, it's natural that there grows distance between you and your old friends. So let me just encourage you. If you're the person staying at home, assume the best. Assume the best in them. They got to find new friends. This is best for them as they move away, that they find a new community to get involved in. I understand this is just part of life. Assume this. I don't know whatever kind of situation you want to put in. That was just one that came to my mind. Whatever kind of situation, assume the best in them. <coughs> and then this is what I've noticed. The opposite of someone who assumes the best is not only someone who assumes the worst, but it's also this. Someone who does not assume the best comes to like uh, rash judgment or rash um, uh, like evaluations or assumptions about people like the moment they say something. I don't know if you have a friend like this, but, but you say something and then instead of them going, I don't think that's what they meant. Let me give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to assume the best. Immediately they blow things up. Like things, little, little tiny things get blown up. Am I making any sense? Like little things that you say now become a big deal. That's, that's the opposite of someone who assumes the best. And here's what I've learned. If that becomes your reputation, that you can take something really small, really insignificant, something that someone says, and you, you like rashly blow things up really quickly instead of, instead of assuming the best. If that becomes your reputation, here's what happens. People start being really careful around you. And people stop being themselves around you because they're afraid of something that they say, every little thing that they say, you're going to run with and make a whole big story out of it instead of assuming the best. And so people get really careful around you. And they don't want to be around you because they can't be themselves around you. Because they're afraid. Listen, it's fear that keeps them away from you. Because they're afraid that you're going to blow something up and it's going to become, and you're not going to give them the benefit of the doubt and even maybe even come to them and say, hey, is that what you meant by that? But it's going to become a big deal. I, I, um, I want to write something out for you uh, because it helps me think about this. Can I go teacher mode on you? <laughs> so that says careful. That says carefree, and that says careless. Every good organization, every good friendship, every healthy friendship, every healthy relationship, every healthy organization with a healthy culture, every healthy ministry understands the difference between these two. Can I walk you through them real quick? The difference between this is Careful is one culture. Carefree is another culture. Careless is another culture. And here's what happens. A careful culture or a careful friendship is when people are so afraid of what you may make of what they say that they have to be super careful around you. You get what I'm saying? They have to be super careful. And what happens is you get real timid, not very fun friendships. I believe this is true about family as well. Some of you have grown up in a careful family, and everyone has to like walk on eggshells around everybody for fear that they may say something wrong because it's not a healthy culture. It's a careful culture, and it's driven by fear, by fear. Careless, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. And this is an environment, a friendship, a relationship, a culture where there's no boundaries at all. Everyone just kind of says whatever they want, and there's no correction if something gets said wrong. It's just everyone, blah, like, you know, no filter, right? You guys know the person that brags about having no filter? It's awful. It's a terrible thing to have, <laughs> right? But some cultures get defined by this because everyone just speaks their mind, and it's a careless culture. And there's no boundaries at all. The ideal environment, the ideal friendship is a carefree friendship. We're not careful, but we're also not careless. We're carefree. And this is defined by people where there's both grace. Like, hey, you can be yourself 
We can enjoy each other. You don't have to be careful. Just be yourself. But it's also defined by correction. Because in a carefree culture, what happens is I can be myself because I know that maybe if I do say something out of line, if I do say something that was not sensitive to how other, another person may perceive it, that person is going to come to me in the right way, away from everybody else, in a one-on-one conversation, and let's deal with it together. And I can receive correction and go, you know what? That was insensitive of me. Insensitive of me. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. That's a carefree family. That's a carefree culture. That's a carefree ministry where there is both grace in things that you say, in the way you talk. Hey, we're going to assume the best in you. We're going to assume that that was a slip-up moment. You didn't really mean that. But there's also correction. So we're not careless, but we're not too careful either. We're not just walking around for fear that someone's going to blow something up. Does that make any sense to anyone? Awesome. Awesome. Just want to make sure. (laughs) You want to live in a world that is carefree. But when you don't assume the best, you react quickly. And in turn, people feel the need to be careful around you. And eventually, they're going to feel the need to not be around you at all because being super careful is exhausting. And they're just going to come to the conclusion that you're exhausting to be around. You want a carefree friendship. You want a carefree environment. James chapter 1 verse 9 says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Can I encourage you just in your relationships and your friendships and your environment around you, to be slow to speak, slow to anger. You know what? What you just said was really insensitive, or I just heard that you were saying something. I'm going to be slow to speak and slow to anger, but there's also going to be a correction conversation. And that's where I want to take the next point, because at some point, you've got to sit down with somebody and have a conversation, right? So let's go to that. Number three is this. As you sit down, set the conflict as the primary focus. So you're going to sit down with someone that the conflict is with. And I would first encourage you to set the conflict as the primary focus. And the reason I say that is this. Our tendency is to attack the person instead of addressing the conflict. So I want to encourage you that as you sit down, address the conflict, don't attack the person. Can we say that together? Ready? One, two, three. Address the conflict, don't attack the person. That was so elementary, but I liked it. Our tendency is to go after the person, and then we end up bringing up like all these past things and things that we never really addressed with them, and they get blindsided with it, and we're like, yeah. And not only that, but that one time in first grade, you stole my crayon, and that really pissed me, oh, sorry, that really ticked me off. That really made me angry. You stole my crayon in first grade. And they're like, what? What? Crayons? I didn't even know we were in class together in first grade. Like, yeah, we were. Right? We tend to bring up all this other stuff. We tend to like, this. it's now time for us just to heap a load of, let me tell you this, let me tell you this, let me tell you this time, this time, this time, this time. And it's our time to unload on the person. And I get it, y'all. I want you to hear me. I get it. I understand. And that's why it's important for you to remove yourself from the situation, remove your emotions as much as possible from the situation, so that you can handle it logistically and with the facts and with the conflict and not going after the person themselves. Don't attack the person. Address the conflict. It's not about a person, but it's about the conflict because you understand this. The only reason that you can understand it's about the conflict, not the person, is this. Conflict exists in relationships because no one is perfect. 
conflict always exists in every kind of relationship because no one is perfect. People are going to say things that they shouldn't have said. People are going to act in ways that really they didn't even want to act in the first place, but they just kind of lost control for a second. People are going to do things that you don't want them to do. Conflict exists because no one is perfect. And the second thing that I would say is this. You understand that because you understand that goes for you too. Because you've been on the other side of conflict. You've been on both sides. And don't you dare sit here and say you've never been on the side that started conflict. You have. I have. We all have. And so if that's the case, then we have to be somewhat gracious to those who we may feel like is responsible for the conflict that we're in. Because I've been on the other side. No one is perfect, therefore conflict is going to exist. And then the third thing I would say is, there's, more, there's possibly more to the story than you know. The reason it's about conflict, not a person, is because there's more to the story than you know and there's a perspective that you don't have about it. So when you sit down, make it about the conflict, not about attacking the person and all their flaws and all this kind of stuff. So I would encourage you to say something like this. I'm just going dad mode on you. Hey, <laughs> I overheard that you said, and you, you fill in your example, whatever the example is. But here's the thing. I overheard that you said something about me. I told you this was my experience last week. I told you an example from my life of gossip. I overheard that you said something about me. And so I wanted to talk to you first because that doesn't seem like something you would do. And so it caught me off guard. Now, I want you to hear what I just said was this. I told them that I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. I just told them that I'm assuming the best. I just told them that that's not how I view them as a person. That's how I view the conflict. It's not that I view you as this crazy, wild, irrational, angry, you know, crazy gossiper. It's, that's how I view what happened in the conflict. Hey, I heard this, and that doesn't seem like you. And so I wanted just to get some clarity about this because that doesn't seem like something you would do. And let me give you <clears throat> kind of a tip uh, for how to have these conversations. You still with me? Here's a tip. Here's a tip. Elevated noise leads to elevated intensity, which leads to decreased clarity, which then leads to no results. If we get to this point where there's really not even clarity about why this conflict exists, why this thing is even happening, why we're even in this room, then really we can't get to an end solution because we have no clarity about what we're even fighting about or what the, what, what, what's going on here. And when there's increased noise, yelling, anger, just the tone of your voice in general, it happens. You're going to increase the intensity. And when you increase intensity, you decrease clarity of what we're even in the room about. This is something that I'm learning in marriage, by the way. This is not just like friendships. You're going to learn this in marriage too. And so I'm fighting really, really hard to address conflict in a way where I keep my voice low, where I keep my voice filled with grace, right? And I say, hey, let's solve this conflict together. I'll give you just uh, another tip. One of the things that I'm learning and my wife and I, we talk about a lot, is we, we're doing our best not to use, um, I don't know like a, a, the word for the word, but words like this, always or never, Always and never are terrible words when you get into, into conflict, like conflict conversations. Because here's why. What you will end up saying is something like this. Well, here's what I say. Babe, you never show appreciation for me in front of our friends. Or you always 
always put me down in front of our friends. Well, is that actually true? That's not true. It's not that she never. It's not that she always. It's just that time or maybe another time. Maybe it seems like here recently, in the past few months, that seems to happen a lot. But always and never are like elevated, heightened intensity. Always, they always heighten the intensity of the conversation when you bring those into the conversation. And so if that's helpful for you in friendships or, or uh, hopefully it may be helpful for you in a marriage one day. So, number four. Not only do you want to set the conflict as the primary focus, but I would encourage you, lastly, last point, to fight for forgiveness and restoration. Fight for it. Jared, you can come up. (coughs) Fight for forgiveness. Fight for restoration. Fight to stay away from just going, I give up. Fight for forgiveness. Fight for restoration. It's possible that in the conversation, listen to me. I'm about to, some of you have been waiting for this caveat here. It's possible for in the conversation for you to come to a conclusion that maybe some things about this person's character came to the surface. Maybe this person is not who you thought they were. Maybe this conflict is revealing some things about how they live their life or who they are as a person. And it's possible for you to get to the end of the conflict thing and go, you know what? I just need to distance myself from this person. I need to just say, you know what? That person is not going to be in my inner circle of friends. That's very possible that you can get to that conclusion. But that doesn't mean you have to be rude about it. It doesn't mean you have to be disrespectful. It just means, hey, I'm making a decision that this is not really the kind of person that I want to be like a primary influence in my life because I've just learned some things about them, and that's just how it is. The Bible actually teaches this. Bad company corrupts good character. And so if you learn something about the company that you're surrounded with that you believe is going to corrupt your character, then you have every right to go, that's not someone that I want to be around with. But here's what I want to tell you. That should not come, that should not be the conclusion unless you have fought to the end. Like I'm saying, you have fought for forgiveness and you've fought for restoration for the relationship. And that's just what it's come to in the very end. There ought to be a fight. I want to read to you an incredible passage in the book of Matthew. <coughs> in uh, verse 23, these are Jesus' words. And this is what he says. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... So you're going to church. These are people who are on their way to the synagogue. They're on their way to the church. And you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. (laughs) Do you hear this? Jesus is saying, hey, if you're on your way to church, you're on your way to worship me, and then you remember or you realize or whatever that you have conflict with someone and it has not been resolved, don't even go to church. Turn around and go solve it with that person. Do you, do, do you hear how much Jesus just elevated your relationships? And how much he just elevated the importance of not having conflict in your relationships. He said, listen, you're on your way to church and you're going to lift your hands. You're going to praise me. You're going to worship me. Offer Back then, offer your sacrifice at the altar. So you're on your way to C12 to get a word from me and it's going to be a great night. But on your way, you remember that you have conflict that's not resolved. He's saying, I don't even want your worship. I don't care about your lifting hands. I don't care about your good intentions for church. 
Go and solve that conflict first. He just elevated like to an extreme level that ought to blow our minds the importance of your relationships with people. The importance of you fighting for unity. For you fighting for there to be no anger, no malice, no slander, no division. For you fighting for that. Don't even go to church. (laughs) That's what he says about your relationship conflict. He says, that is actually more important to me than you going and lifting your hands and singing and all that kind of stuff. And the reason is because Jesus came for people. He died for people. And he elevated the importance of people. And he elevated the importance of your love for people. In fact, in one scripture, he even says this. He says, the way that people will know that you are my follower is by how you love. Not how well you keep the rules. Not how often you go to church. Not any of that. He says, the way that people will know that you're a follower of me is how you love. So, How much you love God is seen by how much you love others. Did you hear me? How much you love God is evident. It's seen by how much you love other people. And he says in this scripture, he says, and you'll show it by going to them and reconciling, restoring the relationship, offering forgiveness. That's how you'll prove it. So go do that. (laughs) Gosh, that convicts me so hard. How so often I just dismiss conflict in my life and just go, you know what, I don't want any part of that. I just kind of step around that. And yet Jesus would have me go solve that first before I come in here. And so, I think the response tonight would just be to ask you, is that how you view conflict in your life? Is that, do you view relationship conflict in your life with that high of importance? Or maybe there's been conflict that you've just decided to get around or not worth the fight can I encourage you tonight fight for it fight for forgiveness fight for unity fight for the restoration of the relationship that's what Jesus would call you to do that's what he would have you to do so as you bow your heads and close your eyes I want to pray for you and just give you an opportunity to respond where you're at and, um, and maybe just settle business with God. Just ask him what he would have you to do with the conflict that's in your life now. Or maybe you just want to say, Lord, would you give me the courage? Would you give me the strength to settle these kinds of things the way you've called me to settle them. Because I tell you this, it's not my natural way. It's not what feels right. But if we want unity as believers and as followers of Jesus, then that's what he's called us to. And so for some of you, you're in the middle of conflict right now. And you've given up on it because you don't want to fight. And I want to encourage you to fight. I want to encourage you to fight for forgiveness, to fight for restoration, because it's worth it. It's worth it. And that would be how Jesus would call you to be unified with other followers. And some of you, if you look at your life and there is consistently conflict, and you've been blaming it on others, 
at some point, you need to take responsibility and say, maybe, maybe I have a part in this. Maybe the reason why there is constantly conflict in my life is because I don't assume the best in people. I don't give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't even bother to have a conflict conversation with someone. Or maybe I don't handle conflict conversations the right way with love and grace and believe in the best. I would just ask you, if you would be so bold to say, Lord, I want to be more like that. I want to change the way that I handle conflict. I want to change the way I live so that I don't have to live in so much conflict all the time. Maybe that can be your prayer tonight. So Father, thank you for your grace once again that we're not perfect in this and that each of us has walked through relationship conflict and each of us has been the culprit of it, the reason why it exists. And Lord, you've obviously, from what you said, you've obviously put a high standard on how we deal with it. And Lord, more than even a high standard, you've put a high value on people. And so, Father, maybe the reason why we don't think about conflict or address conflict the way that we should is because we don't value people the way that you value them. And so, Lord, would you begin to change us? Would you begin to give us a love for people? Would you begin to give us eyes to value people the way that you value them? Would you begin to give us supernatural grace that we can offer to people? Lord, would you begin to remind us of the forgiveness that we have received from your son, Jesus, and because of that, Lord, you've asked us to extend forgiveness to others. Lord, make us a people, make us followers of you who do everything in our power to seek unity, to seek restoration, to seek forgiveness, long before we just decide to not include that person in our circle. Make us that kind of people. Lord, I pray as people look in on what's happening in this room, that they would see those kinds of young people. They would see those kinds of 18, 19, 20, whatever, however old, Lord, they would see those kinds of young people who are choosing to submit to the way that you've called us to live and the way that you've called us to handle conflict. And may it be marking, may it be telling, may it be transformative to the people out there who are looking at. Make us more like you today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.